Can everybody hear me all right? Yes. Okay. Good. If not, then let me know. I think I have the worst hearing in here, so. It's fine. It's on. It's on. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Bruce. Good work on that. Thank you. Appreciate the sound room. Um, we are looking at Colossians um, and the supremacy of Christ in the section Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And this is part three. Uh, we actually started on this, I think, the first Sunday in September, but I had an unwelcome visitor called COVID, and it played me out for a few uh, weeks, and I missed, uh, we missed two weeks. So we did last week part two. This week we're doing part three, uh, verses 15 through 18 of Colossians 1. And you can turn there if you would like, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, and we're going to kind of stay there. If you flip over and put something in there, so we'll come back. We'll be looking at the verse 18 this morning. I want to do a light review of the previous parts just to refresh our memory since this is over a long, longer period of time. And uh, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Uh, I was thinking this morning, this is a lofty subject. You know, when we were looking at the attributes of God, uh, that AJ was teaching that 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 talk about meditating on God's word uh, that that requires a lot of meditation to to uh, even begin to comprehend comprehend the glorious attributes of God and this is about the superiority of Christ and His preeminence and when we start to look at that um, our minds are finite finite and I can't comprehend all that entails especially in the creation of, of, that he talks about and um, really every aspect of it. So uh, I'm, I'm really thinking that I would like and I pray that the Lord would help us understand better the aspects of his supremacy, his preeminence, and his godhood, if you will, his create being creator and also the creator of and the head of the church. Um, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the time that we have to look at your word. I pray that you would bless this time. And I do pray, Father, that you would bless all of those at home that are watching, some of which, many of which are ill and sick. I pray for your healing hand on those that are suffering. I pray for your comfort your spirits comforting for those that are in pain and suffering we pray that you would be with those that can't be here and you would encourage them and we thank you for those who are here that you would bless and encourage them and their families and i pray that you would meet all of our needs as you have promised and that you would bless the service this morning to follow and that you bless us as we open your word and look at one of the clearest pictures of who Christ is and in the Bible. And I pray that you bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, let's look at Colossians 1. I would like to read verses 15 through 19. Um, to That's the context in which we're in. And the, over, the larger context is 15 through 23. I won't go that far. And we'll look at uh, beyond verse 18 next week. Uh, again, we're looking at the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Colossians 1, 
15 through 19. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. In verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That means hang together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in that in all things he might have the preeminence. And verse 19, chapter 1 of Colossians, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness dwell. And we're going to really focus this morning, after we do our review, on he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So if you have a handout, if you don't have one, they're yellow. Mine's white just because I printed it. It's out, it's out front in the lobby, um, and we're going to look at the introduction on page one. Um, and if you, this is much the same as the previous, except I've kind of condensed it. It has less information in it. So verses 15 through 23, as I've said, the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1 is presented as God, supreme over all, absolutely superior to all things. And the statement of the supremacy in Christ in this passage um, has uh, really, he doesn't address the heresy of the Gnosticism, but he goes ahead and talks about what is correct. And um, Three major problems with the heresy was it perverted the doctrine of salvation by grace. It falsely portrayed the Christian life by an emphasis on works. And it denied the deity of Christ, our Redeemer and Creator. And number two, the supremacy of Christ, verses 15 through 18. Again, this is review. The three major statements, and this is the whole thing that I've been doing these three weeks and in the time we've been on this, are surrounding this, the three major statements concerning Christ that demonstrate his supremacy. There are three major statements, and those statements reflect God's, Christ's relationship to God. He's deity. It reflects Christ's relationship to creation, verses 15b through 17. He's creator. And then, then today we're going to be looking at Christ's relationship to the church. He's the head of the church. And Paul emphasizes um, Christ's supremely significant and sovereign position as Savior, my alliteration. <laughs> if he is preeminent, ideas are presented here are similar to what we've read before in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, and John chapter 1. Uh, so item B under 2, the first statement, Christ and deity. We looked at this uh, the first Sunday in November, or rather uh, September, and uh, Curtis Vaughn, under the image, you see at the bottom of page one, the image, number one, A, Christ always has been, is, and always will be the image 
of God. Christ has always been, he is, and always will be the image of God. And we know that Christ is the express image, the exact likeness of God. Let's look at uh, top of page two, the invisible God. God's invisible to our physical sight, 2A, pop, top of page two. God is invisible to our physical sight and cannot be discovered by our finite minds, our intellect and imagination. God cannot be known except in and through Christ. Christ revealed God the Father to us. He that have seen me have seen the Father, John 14, 9. And then that next uh, passage should be Matthew eleven twenty seven 27b. Shouldn't say 12. Okay. Second statement, C. Continuing. This is the second statement of the three that refer to Christ and his superiority. Christ in creation. Well, Christ was the firstborn item uh, chapter 1, verses 15b, second half of 15. Uh, there are two meanings there. It means priority and time are first, and supremacy and rank or position. Item B, under C1, Christ is before all creation in time. He pre-existed prior to creation, and he is... He's the creator, and he's over all in place and position. And the primary emphasis, item C there, is that Christ is supreme and overall and head of all creation. And he's the firstborn. And that's a, that's a reference to the Old Testament firstborn's rights and privileges we talked about. Uh, it doesn't mean item E. This does, if you see that capital N, capital O, capital T, it does not mean that Christ is a part of creation. He's not a created being. He is not the first of all created things. He's not. Christ is the creator. He, he is before all creation in time. Christ is distinguished by uh, creation because he's sovereign Lord who created all things, item F there. He can't be the creator of the created. And really the text also indicates the grammatical construction that Christ is separate and sovereign over creation. So number two there, for by him all things were created, verses 16 and 17. And we looked at specifically that the three prepositional phrases in verse 16, by or in him, through him and unto him. So Christ is the author of creation. He was the agent of creation. And he is the goal, ultimate purpose, or aim of creation. The last sentence at the bottom of page two. The end or aim of all creation is Christ. He is God. Creation is his. Let's turn to page uh, three now. And we talked about all things, and that included all the things that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers. And that's used to show the magnitude of every created thing is that he created. And uh, we looked at um, verse 16 that uh, created by is used twice. First time the verb tense indicates a distinct 
act of creation. The second time, it, it's, it's in the perfect tense, which means literally all things have been created by him or for him or unto him. And that perfect tense indicates action which has a... Uh, it indicates action that's taken place and has a result which has a continuing effect or an abiding result. So the perfect tense emphasizes the duration and persistence of the act of creation, something that happens now, and, the, and that affects down the road. Now, if Christ had not created the world, I would not be here. I consider that a continuing effect. I like that. I'm still, I'm here. And it could be translates, translated, the universe stands created by him. Christ is the creator, he's overall, and he's before all things in verse 17. And before all things, again, it means that he is, he is before all in time and also in rank. He existed before creation, he's over it, and it's similar to the firstborn of all creation. Verse 15b, all things refers to the universe, the whole created order, all things that are are in the entire universe. Um, and what, by him, what, what did you just say about Scotty? Repeat what you just said. Uh, look at look at F two on page three, right in the middle of the page. Before all things, before all things means that he Christ is before all in time and also in rank. He's supreme. He existed before creation. He's over creation, and it's similar to the firstborn in. Of all creation in 15b, similar in meaning. All things refers to the universe and the whole created order and all things that are. Is that First Colossians uh, verse 15? Fifth, uh, seven, uh, uh, first it, no, that's first 17a. <laughs> 17a. Look at look at F. Sorry. And he is before all things. 17a. Okay, but Colossians 1:17, right? Yeah, and verse 15b, the firstborn of all creation, is similar in meaning. Then he is before all things. What, what I was going to ask is, when you say firstborn of all creation, similar to, okay, let me see, he existed before creation, and it's over it, similar to, okay, when you say similar to firstborn of all creation, 15b. The phrase, similar to the phrase that Paul uses in 15b, where he says, who's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature or all creation. That's interesting. I, I uh, in, in a way, it almost sounds like he was created. You know, you know what I mean. And so, if you look back on page two, yeah. okay, under C, uh -huh. where we talk about fifteen B, under E, so C one E. See that right, kind of above the middle of the page. Yeah, this See the great big knot. This, <laughs> yeah. this does not mean that Christ was a part of creation. Right. Christ eternally existed, and if you um, I it was a statement. Look at it, page one under two, the supremacy of Christ. Then B, the first statement. Then one image at the bottom of the page. One A. See it. Christ has always okay. been. Is, Christ has always been. Right. Is and always will be. Right. 
the image of God. So Christ existed with God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity, before creation. So he is preeminent, Paul's argument is, because he was creator. He created all things. Yes, sir? So going back to the attributes of God, this plays into uh, God being outside of time. Uh, from our perspective as limited beings traveling on a linear timeline, one event proceeding after another, it's difficult for us to think of anything that is, was, and will always be uh, from God's perspective because God encompasses all time. We're traveling in a straight line. God is that straight line, is all things around us, all things. There's not a before and after with him. Time does not affect God. So... Christ exists at the same time that he's here on earth, outside of time, with the Father, not in a linear fashion. And it's difficult to wrap your mind around, but it, again, it goes back to sort of the, uh, if you guys remember from the first Attributes of God uh, lesson that I did, that whiteboard with that line on the whiteboard, and then where's God? You draw a big circle around the line, and he exists on all points of in line. So he's before, he's after, he's all about. Very difficult concept to grasp um, um, because we, in our experience, we don't know anything that wasn't created. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we don't know anything that's not going to end. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Paul is addressing the error of Gnosticism, which attacks that and all cults attack the Lord Jesus Christ and so when Paul says this Christ the supremacy of Christ Christ is supreme he's preeminent he's attacking the error that is taught by all cults and and certainly if he is God he's creator and he's going to be we'll look at in a minute he's the head of the church he is preeminent he is overall and Okay, so now let's see, where were we? We were on um, page uh, three. Uh, oh, one of my favorite parts of this passage, I just love this, is uh, item G. Uh, if you look down uh, just above the third statement, uh, the paragraph D, if you look by him, look at G. By him all things consist. Okay, 17B. And this little clause, this phrase, means that the universe and every created thing, visible or invisible, literally consists or holds together because of Christ sustaining them. Not only is Christ the creator of the universe and all things, he is the sustainer and upholder of all creation. Now we know what happens when they, um, what do they call it, uh, break the atom, with, uh, um, fracture the atom, the atomic bomb, <coughs> the power there when they when things come apart. Can you imagine if the whole world came apart? <laughs> but Christ sustains or holds together the whole world. 
So not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer and upholder of creation. Hebrews 1 3 tells us that. And <clears throat> we often overlook that part. Who is a, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself, by, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the upholder of all things by the word of his power. And, um, and in fact, um, over in Acts, so Paul, I forget who was Paul or Peter, was preaching, and they said, in him all things live and move and have their being, referring to a saying that, that already existed by the, the uh, authors of that time. Paul adds the idea through language that Christ continues to sustain the universe, its operation, its cohesion, that means staying together. Apart from it, it would disintegrate. He is, Lightfoot said, he's the principle of cohesion who makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. I like that. That's good. Okay, so now we're on new material. Okay, and this is the third statement, which is Christ. So first we had Christ and deity. Christ in creation, now we have Christ in the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, now, I'm going to do a wrong thing here, okay? I'm going to read the application before we even start. This is the application. So, Listen carefully. This is by a, a gentleman called Charles Erdman, an early uh, 18th and 19th century scholar. He said, the figure of speech, the head of the body, uh, describes the relationship of Christ as that of the head of the body familiar to all Christians. It is expanded in the first letter to the Corinthians where Paul is showing the mutual relationships of the church members, where it talks about where we love one another, care for one another, have, have the gifts to minister to one another in church. He says, the head of the body is prominent in the letter to the Ephesians. The difference is that in the latter, the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, the emphasis is upon the church, the body of whom Christ is the head. While Colossians, the thought is entered upon Christ, who is the head of the body. So those, those, those letters complement one another. Uh, the figure indicates that Christ is the source from which the church derives its life, power, and strength. And he's the source that unites its members in one indivisible organism. And that, above all, he controls and directs the church of which he is the divine head. And that wasn't the application. This is the application. No tricks. Sorry. This is the application. This is by Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, Christ is joined by an indissolvable union to his people. So Christ and us are in an indissolvable union. And he is the head of their glory, their wisdom, and their strength. Oh, beloved, 
as the sun is to be seen mirrored, not only in the face of the great deep, but also in every, I guess maybe he was talking about the ocean there, but in every little drop of dew that hangs upon each blade of grass, so is the glory of Christ to be seen, not only in his universal church, he's talking about the church at large, the whole body of Christ, but in every separate individual in whom his spirit has wrought holiness. Now here's the application. I'm giving you the application before we even start on the, the third part here. Are we giving Christ the preeminence in all things? That theology must be false, which puts Jesus in the second place, or even lower than that, and that experience is a wrong one, which does not put always, always put Christ in the front. He, Christ, must in all things stand first. Christ must be preeminent. That's the application. Is Christ first in your life? Are you giving him preeminence? Now, I put that first, so now you can listen for that all the way through. Okay? All right. So we're on the bottom of page three, under D, third statement, Christ from the church, verse 18. This is part three. We're done with review. He is the head of the body. Paul's third affirmation of Christ concerning Christ's supremacy is that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the sovereign. I hadn't really thought this deeply about this. Christ is the sovereign directing intellect. His, his, he is like, you know, what guides our body? Our, our brain. And his intellect is driving us. He is he is he is directing us. Now we know if the brain fails, death occurs. And the brain is the source of life. When you know your your body can still be operating, but when the brain dies, that's when we unfortunately, God forbid, pull the plug. Um, but the primary meaning here, that's true, but the primary meaning is that Christ is a head of the church, its chief and leader who guides and sovereignly directs it. Now let's turn to page four. Okay. He is. Now, this pronoun is emphatic, meaning he alone or solely is the head of the church. Christ and no other is above all and head of the church. Just as Christ rules creation, he also rules the church. Now, Vine, the famous expositor who has Vine's expository dictionary that you can look words up and get information out, helps those of us who don't know, don't know Greek. He says that here in verse 18, just as in verse 17, the subject he is made especially emphatic by the pronoun because it, it inside the verb is the pronoun but there's also a separate pronoun. So it has the meaning of uh, he himself, he alone, or he only. And it serves to stress the identity of the person, uh, and mine says capital P, that's Christ, concerning whom the preceding statements have been made. That is to say, he who is the creator and sustainer of the universe is also head of the church. 
and it's in physical nature the head uh, is the seat of the controlling the head our head is the seat of controlling directing power of the body guiding and inspiring and sustaining its life and activity so in the spiritual relationship so is Christ and the church so just in the same way that Christ is creator and sustainer of the universe he is also head of the church so he's connecting the, the, the second and third there and emphatically and that's stuff you don't see in the grammar and I love that I just love to see that Paul is saying him and him alone not he is it's him and him alone so okay um, let's look at uh, the church the church means assembly or congregation the church uh, there's a parenthesis there sometimes called universal um, and by that uh, it means all of the people that know Christ in the world okay. and here it's best interpreted to mean all of the redeemed people of God those that are saved by faith through grace as a result of Christ's atonement for their sins as a result of their acceptance in the gospel in parenthesis I forgot to end the parenthesis there so 4a um, I would like to read Spurgeon says what is a church the word signifies an assembly uh, the church of Jesus Christ is an assembly of faithful men the whole company of God's chosen and the word really means called out ones as I remember the entire community of true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ wherever true believers are there's part of the church wherever such men are not that is true believers whatever organization may be in existence there's no church of Jesus Christ the church is no corporation of priests or confederacy of unconverted men it is the assembly of those whose names are written in heaven any assembly of faithful men is a church the aggregate of all these assemblies of faithful men make up the one church which Jesus Christ hath redeemed with his most precious blood and of which he is the sole and only head. He said that, Spurgeon said that November 1st, 1868. The truth is still the truth. It is, and, um, So let's look at number four, the reference uh, to the church as the body um, suggests three things. And we're gonna look at those just a minute, but I wanna share another quote with you. Um, this is MacArthur. He has a pretty good gift of uh, concisely summarizing a, a doctrine or a truth. He says, MacArthur says, there are many, this is really, I really like this because I hadn't thought about this. And uh, he said, there are many metaphors used in scriptures to describe the church. It's called a family, a kingdom, a vineyard, flock a building a bride but the most profound metaphor one having no Old Testament equivalent is that of a body the church is a body and Christ is the head of the body the concept is not used in this sense of head of a company because that's what I used to do, the head of a company but it rather looks at the church as a living organism inseparably 
tied inseparably, tied together by the living Christ. He controls every part of it and gives it life and direction. His life is lived out through all the members uh, and, and he provides the unity of the body. That's from 1 Corinthians 12. Christ energizes and coordinates the diversity within the body, the diversity of spiritual gifts and ministries, again, 1 Corinthians 12. That's where all the, the uh, uh, different uh, positions in the scripture are listed. He also lists, or in the church, rather, he also directs the body's mutuality. And by that, I thought, people have mutual funds in the church. The mutuality, that's actually the sense of mutual ministries, ministering to one another, to each other. Remember the one another command that we went through uh, a year or two ago. Uh, it's the ministry of individuals uh, serving to and supporting each other. And again, 1 Corinthians 12 is a reference to that. Christ is not an angel, he goes on to say, who serves the church. He is the head of his church. And the reason he says that, Christ is not an angel because, you know, the Hebrews worshiped angels and would get distracted by that. And then uh, the Gnostics said that between God and man were all these shadowy figures, some angel-like, that, that was the secret to connecting with God, was to have special knowledge to be able to connect with him. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Okay, so there are three things that uh, the reference to the church as the body suggests. Number one, or A, is the church, we're on page four, 4A. The church is a living, thriving organism um, and with, and you could add there, I've got vitally joined to each other, uh, with each individual vitally joined to each other as members of one another. Colossians, Christ is the head of the church, and in Ephesians, we are the body of the church of which Christ is the head. Now, B, the church which is Christ's body is the means by which he carries out his purposes, work, and will. Now, in America, we're all John Wayne's yeah. or Joanne Wayne, okay? There you go. And, and so we think of the individual, but Christ thinks of the church. Sure, he thinks of the individual, but the church is the way that he ministers. He yeah. works through individuals in the church, and he has us to he work he carries out his purposes his work and his will throughout the church how do we carry out our work through our body and he chooses to use us to do his will in through and with his body body of christ the church c the union of christ with his people enables our position in the body it is intimate and vital together the body is a holy organism that functions according to the will of the head, which is Christ. Now, all parts of the body are essential. Uh, we're incomplete without each other. Our union with Christ makes our position in the body and our relationship to him and each other possible. In the body, we're intimately connected with Christ and who is the head in our life. And so we've looked at, he is the head of the body, the church, okay? And who is the beginning is the next phrase. 
And again, quoting MacArthur, the word beginning, he said, Christ is the source of the church. The Greek word beginning is used here in a twofold sense of being the source and primacy or uh, first. Okay? The church had its origins in Jesus. God shows us in him before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1.4. It is he who gives life to his church, his sacrificial death and resurrection on our behalf, provided our new life. As head of the body, Jesus holds the chief position, our highest rank in the church, or highest rank, excuse me, not ours, his. As the beginning, he is its originator. So he's the source, he's first, and that's what who is the beginning. Now these words, looking back at the handout, these words, who is the beginning, are a basis or a ground for Christ's headship over the church. The relative pronoun who, who is beginning, that pronoun has the sense of because he is the beginning. So we could read, and he is the head of the body of the church because he is the beginning, the source, and the first. And, and now it can mean three things. It can mean supremacy and rank as we've looked at, priority in time or precedence in time, and three, the source or creation, uh, creative initiative I've written down. Uh, here it involves all three, but Paul was emphasizing that Christ was the creator the originator and the source of the church, its life, its being, and its function. So, uh, the next phrase, and he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, firstborn actually describes the word beginning because you see it, who is the beginning, comma, the firstborn. So that describes the beginning. And verse 15 this is, it was used by Paul to explain Christ's relation to creation where he was described as firstborn over all creation. Remember, not born first, but priority, okay? creator. He was before those things and he was over all those things. So meaning precedence in time and superiority meant by Paul. Here, in verse 18, he's described as firstborn from the dead. And the order or, or precedence is taught, or priority is taught. It means Christ is the first to come from the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead. So, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, who the firstborn from the dead. And it talks about that Christ is the firstborn from the dead in true resurrection life. That is, he will never die again. First um, Corinthians 15, 20. I'll read it if you'll just stay in Colossians. <clears throat> but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits, that means first, of them that slept. That means death. For since by man came death, by man also came, that's the second man, Christ, um, 
came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Because he's the first to be raised or born from the dead, he possesses a new, higher, spiritual life, spiritual and eternal, which his people share by virtue of their union with him. Christ being the firstborn from the dead establishes his place as the beginning or origin of the church's life. So, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the first to be raised. And there's an idea of Christ's sovereignty here because Christ was the first to be born from the dead and he has the dignity and sovereignty belonging to the firstborn as in the, the, uh, the, the Hebrew family. Remember, the firstborn had the privileges and rights to, to manage the father's household. So, <clears throat> let me read Charles Erdman on that. He says, Paul further declares that this headship of Christ was due to the fact that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Thus, the figure of speech is somewhat changed. The church is pictured not only as a body, of which believers are the members, it is also a family of which Christ is the firstborn. The family is composed of those who share Christ's resurrection life. He is the beginning. The word denotes not only the first in a series, but also the source to which the series can be traced. He's the beginning. He was the first. And the term is defined by the words which follow. The firstborn from the dead. Christ is also the first from death, never to die again. The fact that he is the firstborn implies others will follow. The fact that he is the beginning indicates that resurrection is due to his power. I thought that was particularly good and succinct. It takes a while to absorb all that, I know. That's why I've written all this out. You can teach this lesson. It's right here. You got it. Okay? Go out and teach others also, right? So this is, this is it's all here for you. So item seven there, bottom of page four, last paragraph, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Remember I started out, second quote about telling you the, the application first. This reveals the purpose for, from the, for, for being the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he rose from the dead in order that his preeminence might become universal, extending to the old creation and to the new church as well. Christ is preeminence. Curtis Vaughn said that, underlined the talisman. Christ's resurrection revealed his sovereignty over all, the old universe, the new creation. Romans 1.4 tells us, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for his name, among whom are ye also the call of Jesus Christ. So he is to have preeminence. 
And a man named Getchy uh, from a church up in Illinois, I read this quote to you last time. I want to repeat half of it, and then half of it is new. It's part of the application. Jesus is not only before all things. We are told that in him, all things hold together. I love that. Everything's sustained together. Consists. Everything consists or is cohesive. Jesus did not create the world and then walk away. His leadership and lordship over creation is essential for every moment of every day. Were he to take his hands off us for a minute, we would fall apart. He is the one who keeps things going. He makes the sun to shine, the rain to fall, the earth to rotate, the seasons to come and go. He is the one who continues to grant life to our bodies. At any given moment, he could withdraw his hand and we would be finished. The implications of this are, he says, simple. One, humility. We ought to be humble. We're not independent in the fullest sense of the word. Without him, we could do nothing. Even the non-believer owes their life and mercy to the Savior. Common grace, he gives common grace, keeps those alive that are non-Christians. But we ought to be humble. Number two, gratitude. We ought to be grateful. Every day we live is a great is a gift from God. Amen. You know, I had brain surgery, and they said, you know, we don't think anything could happen, but it might. You might wake up a vegetable. Anything could happen. I said, okay. I remember I had to do some exercise, and I'd walk along the back trail, and I thought, boy, these trees look good. This really looks good to me because I had a new appreciation for being here. And then after the heart surgery, they said, well, this should work okay, but you know, things happen, right? So I woke up, my heart was doing crazy things, and they said, don't worry about this. We can dial this in with medication. You know, and I thought, oh my goodness. I got home and I walked along the back trail and I yep. said, boy, this looks good. Yeah, but you know, it looks good every day. Every day is a yes. gift. You guys look great. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see you. Every day is a gift. So this passage ends with the words, so that in everything, he, Christ, might have preeminence or supremacy. Jesus is supreme. This is still Getsy saying this. There is no one above him, no one more important. He is to have first place in everything. So that means our thinking. He says our worship, our work, our families, our time, our leisure activities, uh, our time with friends, our use of our money, uh, our use of our time, our relationships with others, our ambitions, our dreams. He is to have first place in everything. So my question to you, you see it coming? Are you giving the Lord Jesus Christ first place in your life? I'll let you answer that. No hands needed. <laughs> That's a rhetorical question. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a fresh look at yes. the supremacy of Christ. I pray that you would, in the coming uh, days, hours, and months, that you would help us to meditate on that and recognize that you are supreme, that the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to give you the supremacy in our life. We pray that you bless the servants to follow, all that are watching online, all that are here this morning. We pray that you bless the families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.